0: What if everything we know today about mental health and mental illness is wrong? According to the World Health Organization, by 2030, depression will be among the leading conditions for disability and morbidity, second only to heart disease. Clearly, something is not working. Traditionally, mental health is defined as the absence of mental illness. Is this definition enough? Dr. Corey Keyes once said, "'We wait for people to break down, and park ambulances at the bottom of the cliff. This is the approach generally taken in the mental health field, where the focus is around treatment rather than prevention. In this episode, we will be hearing from one of the leading voices in positive psychology, and we'll discuss how to not only promote mental well-being, but how to use these tools to build a flourishing society.
1: This is the Public Health Insight Podcast.
0: My name is Linda, and I will be your host for this episode, along with fellow co-hosts, Gordon, LaShawn, and a special guest.
1: Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with.
0: Dr. Corey Keyes is a full professor of sociology at Emory University. He has held the Winship Distinguished Research Professorship, and he was a member of a MacArthur Foundation Research Network on successful midlife development and aging. He co-chaired the first summit of positive psychology in 1999, participated in the National Academies of Science Initiative on the future of human health span, and the National Academies of Science workshop on national statistics to measure recovery from mental illness. His research introduced the concepts of social well-being flourishing, and the two-continuum model of mental health and illness. His work is being used to prevent mental illness through the promotion of positive mental health, otherwise known as flourishing. He has spoken at the Dorison Memorial Lecture for the National College Health Association, the Chesley Lecture on Aging at Minnesota State University, and the Anita Spencer Lectureship in Clinical Behavioral Sciences at McMaster University. Dr. Keyes, welcome to the Public Health Insight podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So Dr. Keyes, you've described yourself as someone who studies happiness or positive psychology. What is happiness and why do we need to study it?
1: Well, it actually, uh, I started my journey on studying happiness because I wanted to conceptualize uh, the presence and absence of good mental health. And as a graduate student in sociology at the University of Wisconsin, this was 1991 to 1995, um, I was assuming that when I wanted to go out and measure positive mental health, that people had already created reliable and valid measurement tools. And much to my surprise um, and my good luck, um, because it's been my career now, um, there were no measures. And so I was at a loss of where to begin. And I met Carol Riff, Dr. Carol Riff, who's well known in the field of psychology and in and, um, and positive psychology for her work on psychological well-being. We began working together and that began my journey in studying um, well-being and happiness because um, Dr. Riff's model is, uh, owes a great deal of its origin believe it or not, to the great philosopher, Aristotle. And so that's where I started to learn about approaches to happiness, ancient Greek philosophy. And I now teach a seminar uh, for my undergraduate students on happiness. And it's, um, well, my students tell me this, I'm not bragging on myself, but they say it's the most popular course at Emory. And it closes in 10 minutes of opening. And um, there's a great hunger among um, our, our young people to learn about happiness. There's a lot of practical lessons in it. So in addition to Aristotle, I also learned that there was this wonderful philosopher named Epicurus. And he had a very different view from Aristotle on what represented a life worth living or a good life. And so I used both Epicurus and Aristotle as sort of the starting point for my model of flourishing.
0: That's really cool to hear. And I, I don't often see any literature or even any sort of diagnostic criteria on how to measure happiness. So why do we need to study this? Why do we need to know how to measure happiness?
1: Well, it's it, of course, it, positive psychology has been around now since... Let's see, 1998, I guess, is the official date that Martin Seligman and the researcher who studies flow, um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, um, wrote that, uh, um, began to champion this new field. And since that time, but let's keep in mind, I'm saying since that time, there is a good body of research on this happiness work already prior to that time. The evidence was growing, and, and that's why positive psychology took off. That um, this approach to well-being, which is a you know is a synonym for happiness, that people with higher levels of aspects of happiness or psychological well-being live physically healthier, longer lives, and. For instance, there's a great body of research out in the the field on one aspect of psychological well-being called purpose in life. When people feel that their life matters and has significance, and they're able to contribute things of worth and value and leave a legacy behind, they live longer, healthier lives. And so that research really began to build a real strong case from a, for a scientific approach to expanding the field of this happiness or positive psychology, and that it had real practical applications um, at, at a public health level. Now the measurement tools, there are when it comes to measurement of happiness, there almost are too many measures now. It's, it's as if the field, uh, has been overwhelmed. There's been this tsunami of creation of measures and it's created something of a confusion. And part of it is this scientific uh, attempt to have sharp elbows and move yourself into the forefront of a a very popular field, Um, right? Everyone wants to claim that they have the best approach to measuring some form of happiness. And it's a great way to get famous very quickly. But uh, so now we're suffering from almost an overwhelming array of measures of happiness. And um, they go fall into these two distinct camps that go back to the two philosophers that I referred to, Epicurus, or the approach to happiness, which is champions feeling good or positive emotions, and then Aristotle, which Carol Riff um, used as the framework for her approach, who championed excellence in functioning and having um, qualities that represent a very strong kind of character. And then my approach was to try to combine these two disparate approaches to happiness and the philosophical traditions. And rather than create a, a new measure, I wanted to create something of a synthesis between the feeling good and the functioning well approach to happiness.
0: Right. So, you you know, Dr. Keys, you talked about it a little bit already with the, the benefits, so to speak, of, of, of happiness and why we should be focusing on happiness. But I was wondering if you could situate us a little bit to talk us through, you know, what does the burden of mental illness look like uh, you know, globally or in specific contexts? Uh, and how does that compare to, you know, more the more traditional uh, things that we focus on, like, you know, cardiovascular diseases?
1: I'd be happy to. And in fact, in in, in her introduction, Linda mentioned this, this global burden disease study, which was really quite historic. And to put it in perspective, I mean, this was 1996 when the first global burden of disease study was published, and I sometimes refer to 1996 as the year when I felt that there was a declaration being made for the independence of the mentally ill in the world, because before 1996, mental illness did not show up on the top ten priority list of, of public health issues to be tackled in any country. And the interesting thing about the Global Burden of Disease study was that prior to 1996, they only used premature mortality or the number of years your life had been cut short due to a health condition as the gold standard for judging what were the top 10 most serious health conditions that need to be tackled by public health systems, and for that reason, I things like depression did not show up on the top ten list. But I think finally somebody realized that you know by the end of the 20th century, most populations over that one hundred years of the 20th century had gained a great deal of life expectancy. In some countries, 20 years, and then the average in the United States was 30 years of life expectancy had been added in that century alone. And so we were living longer, but not necessarily healthier. And so in addition to mortality, they finally included a measure of the amount of disability caused by health conditions. So if it didn't cut your life short, how much did it prevent you from fulfilling basic roles in life. Taking care of yourself, taking care of your family, your your children, your spouse, being able to hold down a full-time job. And with the addition of disability in 1996, depression showed up in fourth place. And I have to tell you, I, I think the world was shocked when that happened. Nobody in the public health system at the time when I was talking to them um, would have predicted that. And so I thought finally the world was going to get serious about things like depression and other mental disorders. Well, they did get serious about studying the global burden of disease, so they replicated this study many times, and every time they did, when they did it in 2004, what they found that was depression was slowly creeping up from fourth to third to second place in some countries. And right now, depression is the leading cause of burden to, in many countries. And by the year 2030, as you predicted, uh, as you've mentioned, the World Health Organization predicts depression will be the number one cause of burden and it will be a bigger burden than heart disease and a bigger burden than cancer. Now, I find this kind of, I started out feeling really excited about the Global Burden of Disease study because I thought, oh, we're going to make a difference now. We're going to change this. We're going to mitigate and reduce the amount of, of mental illness in the world. That's not what's been happening. And, and we can conjecture why, but it's, I think it's, we're simply relying too much on the treatment-only approach. But keep in mind that prediction that the World Health Organization made that by 2030, it, it does not have to happen. But I'm convinced now it will, it will happen if we don't change the way we approach the problem of mental illness. And I've always argued that we need a two-pronged approach While while we're trying to create the best available treatments for people who do become mentally ill, we need to invest millions of dollars in a public health approach that promotes positive mental health and protects against the loss of positive mental health because there's strong evidence that we can prevent depression if we promote flourishing. And it started out with great excitement um, to see this show up, depression show up in the top five. And then it became more um, disappointing as they replicated these studies to see depression creeping up to number one in many countries. And now it's number one in more and more countries. In other words, something's not working worldwide. And what we're doing and I, and for me, part of the problem is we still think we can treat our way out of this.
0: So, you know, Dr. Keys, you always, one of the things I always hear you saying is, and it's in line with the point that you just made is that health is more serious than illness and that, so can you explain, this is a bit of a counterintuitive notion. Can you unpack that for us a little bit?
1: Sure. What I I mean by that is to provoke um, a a kind of response in people that realizes that what we're often doing is giving away our strength and our health and not doing much about it until the loss of our health, mental and our physical, has resulted in what is called an illness. that once it becomes an illness, the traditional biomedical, public health system and healthcare system uh, believes it, it has the best response and the best tools and services and procedures to handle the problem. Because why fix something until it's broke? Hmm. Right? You don't need to fix something if it's broke. But my point is, people are a lot more broken long before they become mentally or physically ill. And what we're doing is not protecting against the loss of good health. And in the case that I'm making, when I I talk about good mental health, I'm talking about the ingredients that go into flourishing. And when people have that criteria for flourishing, it's amazing to see the data around the world. They are the least likely to develop anxiety or depression, they are more likely to not only um, uh, show up for work, but to be much more productive. Mm -hmm. There's a great deal of benefits um, that come with it. But as soon as you go down one level from flourishing just down to what I would call moderate positive mental health, the risk of something like depression goes up three to four fold. So the earliest loss of good mental health from flourishing just down to moderate results in an increase of three to four fold in terms of odds ratio compared to those who stayed flourishing over a time period. And so, right, that people are already at risk and they're already representing something that needs our attention at the public health system long before what we consider serious, which is mental illness. And that's why I say health is more serious than illness. And, and it really bothers people sometimes when I say that, but once you start to explain this, they, um, they realize that we're, they, as long with their healthcare system, they're, they're giving away. In some respects, they're good health and they get no help at, with anything until they're fully broken.
0: And so, Dr. Keys, you mentioned several terms here. You know, we were talking about mental health, mental illness, but it, it sounds almost like you were speaking of kind of a spectrum when you were talking about flourishing. Um, and so I wonder if we could go a little more into what these terms mean. Um Often we think of mental health and mental illness as opposites, right? If, if you're not mentally ill, then you're mentally healthy. Um, can you tell us a little more about mental health, mental illness, and flourishing and languishing? Sure.
1: Well, yes, and, and this term, I, some people ask me, well, why did you use flourishing? Um, at the time, I didn't know that many people translated Aristotle's fancy word eudaimonia, <laughs> Into the English as flourishing. But so I wasn't trying to create confusion. It's just I wanted to be very clear that when I use the word mental health, I'm talking about the presence and absence of good things. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I, I was drawn to really trying to understand Aristotle's view of happiness and epicuruses, and how modern science has translated that into two approaches to well-being. People like Ed Diener, who's very famous in the field, used the term subjective well-being, but when he talked about subjective well-being, he was measuring things like life satisfaction and emotions, whether you felt contentment, joy, and, and, um, and felt happy, and... And for him, well-being was feeling positive emotions towards your life. And Carol Riff, as I mentioned, took a different view that even though feelings are and emotions are very important parts of what it is to be fully alive, we're not the only creatures on this planet that feel emotions, we're like all other animal species. But what sets us apart, Aristotle says, it's our ability to be rational, to use this prefrontal cortex to live according to lines of excellence. He used the word virtue or arete, which is excellence. And he was arguing that a good life is about developing your lines, yourself along lines of excellence, functioning well as a human being becoming really good at being an individual and a citizen. So those two traditions come together when I measure flourishing or positive mental health. So I call it the mental health continuum, short form, because we reduced it down from many, many items, many scales, down to 14 items. So the, the feeling good tradition is measured, are you happy, satisfied, or interested in life? In the last two weeks or the last month. And then there's a long list of functioning well. There's six items that reflect psychological well being. Are you accepting of most parts of your personality? Are you being challenged to grow and become a better person? Does your life have direction or meaning? That's purpose. Are you able to manage your life? That's environmental mastery. There's so many, I, I and mean, I've said this so many times, but there's six various aspects of psychological. And then my, my, my approach that I did in my doctoral thesis, social well-being consisted of contributing things of worth to your community, feeling integrated, able to make sense of the world around you. And to flourish means you feel one out of the three feeling good every day, or almost every day combined with at least six out of 11 signs or symptoms of functioning well every day or almost every day. So to have mental health is to be functioning well with, for instance, purpose in life, belonging, contribution, acceptance of self and others, and, and your interest in life are happy or satisfied. And people ask me, well, where did that come from? And I turned the diagnosis of depression, literally, on its head. Mm-hmm. If you look at the psychiatric, um, American Psychiatric uh, Diagnostic, DSM, what, what does it take to be depressed? You have to have two si- one of two signs of, of anhedonia, depressed mood or loss of interest in life, combined with at least four out of the seven malfunctioning. And so positive mental health is literally um, a, a sort of syndrome of functioning well and feeling good in the same way that depression is a syndrome of functioning poorly and feeling bad. And even though they kind of sound the same, once we were able to measure both of these things, every study done in every culture that's been studied so far has found support for the 2 continue model. They're correlated, but the correlation is so modest that they represent distinct dimensions. So that literally means that the absence of mental illness does not mean everyone's flourishing. And just because you have a mental disorder does not mean you have the complete absence of positive mental health. And that has huge implications um, um, that are of relevance to public health as well as psychiatry, we could cure mental disorders tomorrow. It wouldn't necessarily mean um, our population is truly mentally healthy. It would help. Don't don't get me wrong. And I don't want the (laughs) listeners to think, well, reducing and mitigating depression isn't important, but it's just one step towards creating a mentally healthy population.
0: This mental health continuum that you're mentioning is very interesting because... Usually when we talk about screening for something, you know, diagnosing cancer or anything like that, we're trying to find something bad like a tumor or like, you know, just something that's abnormal, for example. But this seems more of a tool for positive mental health. And why was this kind of shifting of, of um, a kind of perspective important?
1: Well, in, in one respect, what I'm trying to encourage public health systems and healthcare systems to do is to regularly monitor even patients who aren't, don't have a illness. Yes. And, and, and one way to right, and regularly monitor them and respond to the earliest losses of the good stuff, right? The good physical health parameters, or in my case, Somebody was flourishing, but last month, but suddenly they show up for the clinic and you've done a quick screening using my tool and they're now moderately mentally mentally healthy at the moderate level. That's the first warning sign. Something is going in the wrong direction. You want to respond to the earliest losses of good health and correct that and maintain higher levels of the good health parameters for as long as possible and so this is really a reorientation of of the healthcare system the medical and the public health and I say reorientation because if you were to go back to the greek stories the ancient myths and the ancient gods that they associated with the origins of certain things. And in this case, the myth of Asclepius, right? Asclepius is considered the so-called father of medicine. And um, he was considered the father of medicine because the story goes that he, he had several, he didn't give birth, but his wife gave birth to several daughters. Two of whom were named, one was named Panacea, and she represented one branch of healthcare, which was about creating fixes and panaceas to help things when they break down. But he also had a daughter called Hygieia, from the word hygiene. In the ancient world, hygiene, good hygiene was associated with being healthy. And the snake, right? The the symbol for medicine is the staff with the snake going around the staff. As the story goes, that snake represents hygeia because snakes regularly molt or lose their skin and regenerate their, their healthy skin. So even medicine in its very origin, was supposed to be practicing these two branches of healthcare simultaneously. And I think the work that we've been doing makes a very strong case for doing both now. And so LaShawn, my my point here is we, I've tried to create the, the shortest, briefest, most valid, reliable measurement tool that can be quickly used and is being adopted in many clinics, especially on college campuses, for regular screening. And even though somebody's not suicidal or depressed, you should be taking them far more serious if they were flourishing, and or and now they have lost some level of good mental health because all the signs are is that's putting them at risk for the things like depression and suicide.
0: Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's very much a preventative kind of focus at that point.
1: It is very much by promoting and preventing against the loss of the good stuff we mm-hmm. can prevent the things. And let me tell you that the, all the medications in the world that we have available for mental disorders and even all the counseling do not put the, the so-called Humpty Dumpty back together the way they were when they were fully healthy. And mm-hmm. I'm a great example. I had to break down before the healthcare system did anything. And then what, what I realized is these medications... Deal with symptoms. They do not address any fundamental causes of these things. And so I, we, we have a long way to go when it comes to pro- providing the best available treatment. I'm not saying we're not doing a decent job, but I think psychiatry and the medical field needs to be far more humble in its approach and its Sometimes it's arrogance in the way it treats approaches like what we're advocating for on this podcast, which is a public health approach that prevents by promoting the very things that make life worth living. You're not gonna find happiness or purpose in life or contribution in any medication. It's found in communities in the way we educate, how we work, how we treat each other and what we value. It's going to be how we live that's going to be the best medicine for flourishing. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community
0: action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make Public Health
1: Viral.